This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. I'm Cheney Ogwumike. I'm Lisa Leslie, and we're very excited to tell you about our new podcast with Blue Wire, Front and Center. Lisa and I are breaking down what's going on in our lives, in the world, and keeping it 100. We're also learning from amazing guests as well, like Emmanuel Acho. People that show love to me, I forever got their back. Vivica A. Fox. If the foundation isn't right, then the rest of it's going to go wrong from there. And more. Subscribe to Front and Center today. I am thrilled to have with us today Dr. Courtney Sito, an assistant professor in the School of Kinesiology and Health Studies at Queen's University. That's in Canada. Her research focuses on the intersections of power and inequality as they present themselves in the world of sport and physical activity. She is also senior editor of Hockey and Society, a hockey blog that explores critical social issues in ice hockey. And today... I'm super excited. I'm pumped because she wrote this beautiful book, which is beautiful as an object. You really love the cover. We'll try to like have that somewhere on our interview, Changing on the Fly, Hockey Through the Voices of South Asian Canadians, which was published just this year, had us Rutgers University Presses. So welcome, Dr. Sito. Hi, Brenda. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we are thrilled. So one thing I just want to start out with, so many times when I read a sports history book, I end up learning a whole lot about other things. And one of them was the South Asian community in Canada. So could you give listeners who just have no idea about when the South Asian diaspora came to Canada and where, could you give us a sense of what that was like? Sure. So the when we say South Asian in Canada, we're referring to largely like uh, people from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal. Um, it's kind of like the Canadian state interpretation of South Asian. And um, South Asian migration to Canada started in the early 1900s, really, and particularly with Punjabi Sikh uh, people from India. And so that group has been in Canada for many, many years. And you have uh, multiple generations that have kind of been part of the Canadian Armed Forces and really a big part of um, labor in Canada to make the economy what it is, especially in British Columbia with like forestry and logging. So I would say that Canadian history is very intertwined with South Asian history. You can't really separate them from each other. Yeah. And that was fascinating to me because, of course, it makes sense. Uh, British Empire, you know, what's going on in the late 19th century with labor migrations. Um, But part of why it doesn't come to consciousness is precisely the topic that you write about, which is that a lot of the national supposed, you know, national pastime 
of Canada is ice hockey, and that has been really coded as white and a particular kind of white masculinity. And I wondered if you could talk about why. So in in this book, you it's really great in the sense that it goes back and forth between some really sort of high theory, which you explain in a very accessible way. Thank you. And yeah, there's there's a lot of it in here, actually. Um, and so that's not an easy task to make that interesting to people who may not have read, you know, the entire works of Bourdieu. Uh, and yet it's useful, you know, when you're reading. And then you sort of find this way to weave in this ethnography, doing these interviews with all kinds of uh, subjects that are South Asian and have been involved in ice hockey. Can you explain a little bit about what attracted you, I guess, to the project and to that method of doing it? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I was struggling for a PhD project when I decided I wanted to do a PhD. And after my master's, I was so burnt out that I was like, I'm never going to do a PhD. And it took me like three months really to be like, I want to do a PhD. (laughs) And what I had learned really from doing my master's is that people do really cool things with the things that they love. And so I had done my master's around tennis and that enabled me to immerse myself in something that I loved at the time. But I was like, oh, people do research on hockey. Like I can hang out at rinks and I can watch hockey call that my work. So I was like, okay, I need to do something around hockey and I needed to figure out what that story was. And around that time, the the Hockey is for Everyone campaign was kind of floating around. Um, And the Hockey Night Punjabi broadcast in Canada was starting to pick up steam. The Breakaway film came out at TIFF in like 2011 or something like that. So I saw all these narratives coalescing around this idea that maybe hockey isn't just a white man's sport. Um, And it coupled with personal experiences that I had working at SportCheck, which is our equivalent, I guess, of Dick's Sporting Goods in the States, in that I worked in a very heavily South Asian populated area, and I would help a lot of South Asian kids go through the process of buying hockey equipment because they wanted to participate. Um, And there was one young boy that came in one day and he had a small patka on his head. Um, And we just tried to find a a helmet that would would fit him safely and also allow him to exercise his Sikh identity. And we just couldn't find that happy medium. Um, And him and his mother had a conversation in the store in Punjabi and he took off all the equipment and then he left the store. And it was one of those things that didn't really stick with me at the time. But like 10 years later, I was like, oh, maybe hockey isn't for everyone because that wasn't an experience that I had seen anybody else have in the store. It's not a conversation that other families normally have in a sport check. So it just kind of led me down this path of questioning really who who does hockey include, who does it exclude, and in what ways. So it was just kind of a fortuitous coalescing of, of different media things and personal experience that brought me to it. And I had certainly believed the idea that hockey was a white man's game. Like I grew up with that idea and I bought it hook, line and sinker because it just made sense. Um, And I think one of the first things that my PhD supervisor did was he read my introduction and he was like, you need to go back and do more reading because this is not actually the way it is. And that's when I learned about the colored hockey leagues of the Maritimes and um, and indigenous contributions to the game. And I was like, oh, okay, I have been cut off from a whole lot of Canadian history um, that is supposed to be as much mine as anybody else's. Yeah, and one of the things, just speaking to your point, that you really open up in this book is that, of course, it is centered on South Asian Canadians, but um, you actually are constantly putting them in the broader context and in dialogue 
with Indigenous peoples, with other diasporic communities that are in Canada, with Black Canadians. Um, and, and you're both kind of interested in how that community's integration or lack thereof has been similar and different to others. And I just, I wanted to ask as someone else who did a national history, if you're dealing with Indigenous peoples as sort of a central piece, is there some way in which that group challenges the very idea of a nation? Like, should we be doing, to some extent, should we be breaking open some of these national narratives going forward? I think the simple answer is yes. Um, and I think that this is kind of a, a contentious thing that we're getting to with hockey in Canada, that it's like, how do you talk about, quote unquote, Canada's game when it's built on settler colonialism? It's like inherently racist in the, the segregation that was formed upon. It forces us to question a lot about what we think we know as a nation and what we are supposed to be as a people. And I think that that's why we don't talk about race and hockey in particular. It challenges um, the notion of Canadianness that we're supposed to be welcoming and multicultural. And once we start pulling at that thread, it comes apart pretty quickly. In your book, it comes apart really quickly <laughs> and in some very heartbreaking ways. I mean, the story of throwing alcohol on the indigenous teams, the the racial abuse of the South Asian players that you're studying. So could you talk a little bit then about how your study, I mean, it just takes apart the idea that Canada is this multicultural mecca. Yeah, and I think that that's kind of the quote-unquote fun part about it, is that I'm pitting these two quintessentially Canadian myths against each other. One, that hockey is Canada, and two, that Canada is multicultural. So if they're true separately, they should be true together. Um, but that's exactly when they start to kind of fall apart. So the reality is that racialized contributions have been erased out of hockey's history. Um, and because of that, we have this strong nationalism built on the lie that hockey is is a white man's game. And so from there, we see everybody that's new to the game, that's black, indigenous, or person of color, it's like we're welcoming them into something that is not theirs. So I kind of interpret uh, the work that I've done around this as a returning of hockey to its actual multicultural roots. Yeah, and for me, that really speaks to something similar with gender. When you repeat the myth over and over again that women didn't play, then what you're doing is legitimizing the current media's standard argument, which is things are just getting better. This is very new. Things are just getting better. And so to be able to debunk that, to have some of this history in many ways, in the most optimistic way as scholars, um, you know, it's, it's probably like a great resource for some of these institutions. And you talk about some of them that are doing the work um, to be able to point to the history and say, actually, the reason that we haven't made this progress is systemic racism, not because we haven't been playing, not because we're not here, but you're systemically uh, neglecting and marginalizing our experiences. Yeah, and I think that optimism is an interesting aspect as well, because like we, 
I think I started the project for sure. And I talk about it in one of the chapters that I was like, oh, I'm going to like catalog all this racism and we're going to show it. And then people will see that it's a real thing and then everything will change. And then I realized that I just kept gathering and gathering and gathering and nothing was really changing. Um, so that was kind of a kick in the teeth as, as a grad student to have that realization. But I think that that's an important realization as well. It's like, yes, we do the work to make sure that it's, um, it's there and it's easily accessible. Um, but the knowledge itself is certainly not what changes the institutions. We have to continue pushing back and challenging. So uh, I, think, I think hockey is at least finally in that place where it realizes that it does have to change. So maybe we have gathered slightly enough evidence at this point but I mean you you continue to see it on social media and things are like prove it prove that there's racism it's like really are we still having this conversation <laughs> and one at least for the first half of the book and then you come back to it later one of the touchstones of the book is hockey night Punjabi um so I was wondering for listeners because I immediately googled it and I'm not a hockey person and I was fascinated by its existence could you talk about it, its importance, you know, to to your study and and also to what you call ethnic media? Mm-hmm. So ethnic media is really any kind of uh, media that is created outside of the English language in, in Canada and the U.S. And it's, it's actually a very fast-growing segment of the media landscape, um, particularly in, like, Indigenous languages and things like that. So if we think of language as a cornerstone of culture and existence, um, it's actually quite important. So Hockey Night Punjabi started in 2008 um, with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation as really just an experiment in multiculturalism. They threw out a bunch of different languages to, to cover a hockey game. Um, and Punjabi was the one that stuck. It really spoke to the community. And I think that it it hit a presentation uh, that resonated with the, the community. So I, I would say that it's not necessarily easily replicated if you were just to call sports in a particular language. It's not what it is. It's the way it's packaged. It's the way that the language is translated um, and in a particular way that the native speakers understand it as kind of welcoming, really. And so it kind of went through some stints of it was on the air and then it got canceled. It was on the air, it got canceled. And the community always brought it back. And now it has private sponsorship. Um, So it's been going... I guess, yeah, about 11, 12 seasons now. Um, and I think 2016 is when it really took off with the Pittsburgh Penguins. Um, Harner Ryan Singh did a Bonino, Bonino, Bonino call that kind of went uh, viral. And uh, they ended up being invited to the Pittsburgh Penguins Stanley Cup parade. And so that was a really nice thing to see, to watch these guys kind of ascend through sports media and transgress what was ethnic media into quote-unquote mainstream media. It raises some other issues about English media being the ultimate goal for folks, uh, which I think can be you know problematic in some ways, but at the same time to see people who have really earned their chops uh, in a different way opens up sports media in a very cool uh, manner for the future. So one of the ideas of, you know, that the book tries to... Um maybe not debunk, but certainly problematize, is that sports are this great vehicle for integration. And I kept feeling when I was reading the answers that you have from some of the young players in particular, where they describe their teammates asking them about their culture, about their food, about things like this. And on the one hand, you're you're showing their reticence 
to actually maybe talk about race very much. And then on, on the other hand, and maybe these are related and I want to ask you, um, they also seem to be doing an awful lot of work for the white people in their lives. <laughs> I mean, it seems like there's so much, like that multiculturalism in some ways is primarily benefiting white youth sports. Is that is that the case? Yeah, I think that that's a really succinct way of putting it. And it was a realization I had going through the data because the people who were changing from these interactions were not the South Asian players. Um, so, you know, the white players would ask them about food and culture and language. So those white players then learn more about South Asian culture. But all the South Asian players I interviewed, they were born and raised in Canada. Like they don't have questions in the other direction about what is Canada like? What is Canadianness about? Um, it's an odd arrangement that we have created. And it's again, it's like, oh, you are coming and joining us and be like, well, but really, you're the one that's actually benefiting from our presence here. You're just not really seeing it in that light. So yeah, I think that that's definitely an important thing to understand about quote unquote, integration and in sport for sure. And I think we could extrapolate that to so many youth programs, whether it's, you know, in elementary school that says we're going to have you know, Hispanic Heritage Month, whatever that means. Um, and then we're going to make all of the Latinx families uh, come in with food and give talks and read books. And so on the one hand, absolutely, you have an opportunity to feel an expert and to have your expertise validated. But on the other hand, how much are the Latinx kids learning from that experience and how much are they just doing a whole bunch of of labor for white families. Yeah, and we see this in other programs like sport for development programs or you kind of go abroad and you volunteer and we're like, oh, I'm going to go help this orphanage. I'm going to help these kids learn to play soccer. But it's really, it's very consistent that the narrative is that the person who goes is the one that's changed when they come back and the, the community is kind of hit and miss. Um, and I would say that that's the same with BIPOC uh, sharing of trauma when we had Eugene Arcand, who's a residential school survivor and uh, indigenous, former indigenous hockey player, talk at the round table on racism, like him sharing his story about life in residential school was not changing for him. That was changing for the audience. We were really asking him to open up a, a wound there for us and it's for our benefit. So I think that was probably the first time that I really had that experience. I was like, oh, this is not about him at all. This is completely about me. And that's so hard because on the one hand, of course, there's good intentions with giving those people space. And yet there's also demands that come with that. I know people say, you know, I'm going to make my seat at the table. And um, that's great if you're being served. But, <laughs> you know, uh, you also get this sort of feeling where there's a there's just a really tough um, I have ambivalence towards it. Or when I see it, it looks to me as there's a lot of contradiction going on there. You certainly want to provide the space and yet realize that, at least for me as a white person, I'm asking a particular kind of emotional and also time labor and, and, and also opening a vulnerability because you cannot guarantee the response to that. Yeah, and I think it's kind of, we need to look for a balance in that if people are willing to share that kind of experience and time and labor with you, then you take it and you absorb it and you appreciate it. Um, but when people are like, no, not now, or not for you, whatever the story is, then we have to respect that as well. Indeed. 
even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Cue Maracas. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs which are thrown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through December 31st. Okay, ready? Have I told you guys about my Uncle Quentin? Yeah, I know about him. You know about Uncle Quentin? My Uncle Quentin calls me so early on the weekends to help place his bets. And for, <laughs> I don't know how to explain to him. Like, Uncle Quentin, I, first of all, don't bet. Second of all, it is 7 a.m. my time, so you are getting up <laughs> at 6 in the morning for advice that I cannot really give you <laughs> because I don't bet on anything. Like, not even if you were like, hey, Mira, I bet you that it's going to rain today for a lollipop. Like, nope, I don't like that stress in my life. It's too stressful. <laughs> But now, you know, I just came back from Mississippi, so I got to see Uncle Quentin. And, of course, he was trying to ask me what to wager on this, that, and the other. And I was so happy that finally I could give him some actual good information because I was like, Uncle Quentin, I got something for you. Bet online is your place. It's absolutely your place to go. It has game spreads and totals and players and teams and coaching props. You can literally wager on anything. They have more opportunities to wager than almost anything else. And they have all these sign-up bonuses. I was like, go over there. Please take advantage of all of this. Leave me the hell alone. And now, if you, like my Uncle Quentin, want to go to bet online and take any wagers of anything like that, please use the code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word, because they are your online sportsbook experts and not your favorite niece in the middle of Pennsylvania who cannot be bothered to help you with your wagers. So go to Bet Online, Uncle Quentin, and everybody else, your online sportsbook experts. That was really professional. Yeah, that was so good, Amira. We might need Vuvuzelas for mine, because that was really good. Indeed. So in around the middle part of the book, you really do a deep dive into South Asian masculinities and femininities. And I just wanted to see for listeners if you could kind of summarize your findings and why you thought that was important. Yeah, actually, the editors asked for that uh, chapter to be separated out. It was the data was in the the thesis. It just kind of we reorganized it so that it highlighted gender more specifically. So I think one of the interesting things that came about from all the interviews that I did was that 
or maybe we should expect this, but the men and the boys were not particularly keen to share in any detail their experiences with, with racism. It was kind of like, you know, did you did you experience anything? They're like, yeah, but, you know, it wasn't that big a deal. Um, I just fought them or I got in their face and then it wasn't that big of a deal. Whereas on the other hand, when I'm interviewing women hockey players, we're going into lengthy details about their racist experiences. So with the men, it, their dominant response really was to kind of enhance their own physicality. And that's the way to really survive racism in a white dominated sport. So it's like the one thing that I can control is how I bulk up my body. So if I can make myself fit enough and strong enough that the racists aren't going to go after me, then that makes my life easier and better, which is, you know, a reasonable um, solution. The problem is, is that it doesn't get rid of racism. It just shifts it onto the next more vulnerable person. Um, so these individualized responses, like you, you have to give credit in that, yeah, they're just trying to survive, they're just trying to play the game that they love, but it does not solve the problem as a whole. Um, and with women, it's just like we're struggling so hard to to be women in a masculine space that we don't have time to talk about racism. We're too busy talking about gender, we're too busy trying to establish ourselves and, and create a path for young women to be able to play hockey at an elite level and be paid for it. Um, so there is no space to talk about racism in women's hockey. Are there other differences that you found between the experiences of girls and boys or men and women? Um, I mean, one of the participants talked about how when she would play with boys, they just didn't even really know what to do with her. But with girls, there would be a lot more verbal attacks on the ice, um, whereas the boys, it tended to be verbal and physical. But on the whole, I would say that the racism is pretty consistent and, and similar in boys and girls hockey, unfortunately. So there's another stereotype. Um, I mean, there might be particular truths um, to this, but reminded me of a Bendit like Beckham sort of moment that somehow South Asian families would limit girls' participation versus boys. Did you find that in the Canadian context? Yeah, I mean, I think we still have that assumption. Um, and it's it's just really based down to the family, right? Like all families are different. And obviously I found many um, young women to interview and their parents were very happy to have them in ice hockey. So I think it starts to chip away at the stereotype that it's like, oh, South Asian families are just really reserved and they don't want um, their kids to participate in sport. And that might have been more true for particular generations because I felt like the girls that I was interviewing their parents put them into sports or their mothers put them into hockey because they never got the opportunity to really um, explore their own athletic opportunity. So it kind of swings the pendulum in the opposite direction for some families. Um, towards the end of the book, you talk about some of the organizations that are working towards changing or at least maybe even just if they're memorializing the participation of people of color in ice hockey. And it sort of like gets to this question that bothers me all the time and probably annoys my co-hosts to no end, which is, so you're looking at this landscape. Is it possible to reform within the system or is this something where the DIY, as you call it, or DIY citizenship, which is, I like that a lot. Um, is this a situation where it's got to be agitation from outside? the regular institutions? Or how do you see that right now in this Black Lives Matter moment? 
I see a lot of co-optation. <laughs> That's what I see. Um, so yeah, we have things like um, the We Are Hockey Museum exhibit that we started at the Sikh Heritage Museum and the University of the Fraser Valley in Abbotsford, Vancouver. We were trying to just tell um, counter narratives about the, the history of hockey and write in all those people that had been written out by and large. So I see those as kind of like, yeah, you're shaking the cage from the outside and the hope was really to to bring attention to all these stories that we have been missing. So that maybe the Hockey Hall of Fame could be like, oh, people are interested in this. Maybe we should start doing this as well. Um, and I will say that that museum exhibit has upgraded. So it's been picked up by the BC Sports Hall of Fame and is allowed to expand and things like that. Um, but I think what we see a lot of and I think we need to be careful of is organizations like Apna Hockey and Black Girl Hockey Club, which are doing great work and are absolutely necessary, that organizations like the NHL and Hockey Canada and USA Hockey tend to like to fly in and do photo ops uh, and kind of look like, yes, we're going to we're going to help. We're going to support. We want diversity. And yet the hard work doesn't get done. The the restructuring that you're alluding to doesn't get done, but we're willing to do the photo ops, the hockey clinics, um, the come to a game, learn to play clinics. Those are all the easy things with respect to access, but it doesn't change the power and privilege within the game. So yeah, I think we've opened the door slightly so that we can kind of stick our noses in and be like, hello, we're here. Can we have a conversation? But the conversation is not uh, one at depth at this point. So you mentioned Black Girls Hockey Club. I mean, uh, are there other organizations that listeners should be paying close attention to that are, are really challenging this structure? Um, there is a new Latino hockey club, I think, uh, that popped up on Twitter recently. Um, Puerto Rico has a hockey association that is like really trying to rebuild their rink after Hurricane Irma and things like that. And they really try to, to rally the Latinx community around hockey. Yeah, beyond that, there's not necessarily a lot. There's Players Against Hate and then again, Apna Hockey. But yeah, there's, I mean, I think it's growing. There's a Hockey Players of Color movement, HPOC movement on Twitter as well. So with the summer of 2020, I think that there was uh, a desire to, to create more of these um, organizations that take space for themselves and amplify their own stories. Um, so yeah, I think in the next year, we'll probably see a large growth in that. And I just don't want to leave this other fact before I have some personal questions from our co-hosts for you. But regarding the book, you really uh, do a good job of explaining how racist hate crimes in Canada are actually really just as high or higher than in the United States. And yet Canadians are telling themselves over and over they're not the United States. Um, what's going on? How are they <laughs> able to maintain that? How can they maintain that? Um, how are people buying this? Uh, it's, a, it's a well-told story. I mean, that's what we hang our entire identity on. So we're not the United States. We, that's our identity is by uh, negative abstraction, really. Um, but yeah, the reality is that hate crimes in Canada can and have been um, higher per capita than in the United States uh, with Black Canadians, with Indigenous Canadians. Anti-Semitism is, is very prevalent in Canada. So I think that we're fooling ourselves when we say that, you know, we're this 
just because we've invited people together doesn't mean that we get along. And I think that that's really the thing that we mistake. Um, I think David J. Leonard has written it perfectly in that proximity to diversity does not foster any sort of anti-racism. That's not the, the hard thing. The easy thing is putting everybody together in a room. It's like, how do you get those people to work together and appreciate each other? That's the hard work. And with, I think with increasing immigration in Canada, we will actually see more um, racial tension. It's just, you know, the sharing of resources is kind of what causes people to hunker down with their own and, and kind of see otherness where they want to. So, yeah, I mean, I think we're not really that different from the United States. I think it's actually sometimes better in the United States because you're willing to have conversations about slavery, right? Like we don't even acknowledge really that slavery was a thing in Canada. Um, so yeah, I think we've actually got a longer way to go. We just are very polite about it. And that politeness covers up, unfortunately, a lot of inequality. Mm. Well, I'm not very polite. So <laughs> if they need any models, I'm kidding. Um, there are some rapid fire questions from co-hosts because Professor Courtney Sito has a lot of fans among the co-hosts of Burn It All Down. This is terrifying. <laughs> I know some of the answers to this having read the book, but another teaser. Did you play hockey yourself and do you play hockey yourself? So I did not grow up playing hockey. There was not a lot of girls ice hockey at the time. So my parents both worked full time. They couldn't get me to the rink for practices. So I picked up hockey at the wonderful age of 21, which makes it so easy to learn at an advanced age. <laughs> what position do you play? Uh, my preferred position is right wing, but I will play anything that the team needs me to, including one time goalie. Ooh, <laughs> nerves of steel. What is your favorite team? I mean, born and raised in Vancouver, so the Canucks are quote-unquote my favorite team. Do I have a favorite actual NHL team these days? No, I do not. <laughs> right. It's very hard to be a Marxist scholar and maintain the love of such industrial titans. <laughs> if you had any player that you would induct into the Hall of Fame tomorrow, who would it be? Well, any player. I'm trying to think of somebody maybe who wouldn't necessarily get the nod but we should probably acknowledge them maybe somebody like a bev beaver who was like a an indigenous girl who played in the i want to say the 60s and there just was they weren't allowed girls weren't allowed to play hockey at residential schools but she was one of the best on the team she played with the boys until the boys got to play organized and then she wasn't allowed to play and then she pretended to be a boy so that she can continue playing hockey um, certainly doesn't meet any of the criteria that the Hockey Hall of Fame would want, but I think that she's obviously somebody that should be memorialized in the broader story of hockey, especially in Canada. Yeah, that's a perfect answer for Burn It All Down, right? We're going to like totally reshape all of the criteria for Hall of Fame. I think <laughs> this is perfect. What is one place in the U.S. you want to visit that you haven't? Um, I want to go to Yosemite National Park. That's the next one on the list. Okay. What is your next book? Um, why would we think that there is a next book? Because <laughs> <laughs> this one was good. Why stop now? I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. It's kind of like when I was done my master's, I was like, I'm never going to do a PhD. I was like, I'm never doing another book. That was that was kind of hard. <laughs> so you have three months till you change your mind, if it's anything like your master's. I guess. Yeah. 
we'll come back to you in three months. Um, and last but not least, besides Lindsay Gibbs, Jessica Luther, Brenda Elsie, and Amira Rose Davis, who is your favorite co-host of Burn It All Down? I mean, you guys have had some really good guest hosts. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I guess if I have to say Shireen, I'll say Shireen. Oof. But, All right. yeah, I mean, that comes with a, a phone call and like a video call. and There's just a whole lot attached to it, so... <laughs> <laughs> okay Shereen Ahmed you win besides <laughs> Lindsay Gibbs, Brenda Elsie, Jessica Luther and Amira Rose Davis you are officially Dr. Courtney Cito's very favorite burn it all down co-host you said that there was editing right yeah <laughs> this is staying in <laughs> it's the best part uh, I just want to thank you so much, Dr. Courtney Sito. I love this book. Everyone should go out and buy it. It is at Rutgers University Press, and it is uh, brand new and super interesting. I hope I've convinced you of that. So thank you for being with us, the author of Changing on the Fly, Hockey Through the Voices of South Asian Canadians. Thank you so much, and I'm happy to throw flames right next to you folks. <laughs>